Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. It's great to see so many of you out here this morning. I'm Althea Brooks, and I'm Senior Director of Lifetime Learning in the Office of Engagement. And um, every Saturday morning before home football game, almost every Saturday morning before home football game, we are here with more than the score, either at Alumni Hall or Newcomb, uh, Newcomb Theater. Uh, next week, it's Virginia Tech we're playing, and we will not have a more than the score. So this is our final more than the score for the season. Anyone sad about that? Yeah. <laughs> uh, for the staff, it's bittersweet. We've been working on this program since April. Uh, so we're kind of ready for it to wind up. In a, but, at, you know, at some point, um, you know, it has to come, come to the end at, uh, for the season. But we'll be back next year. Look for us. So special thanks to the Lifetime Learning Team. Special thanks to the Lifetime Learning Team that has been working so hard to produce this program. Dana Mays, Mary Lynn Musser, uh, Susan Lynch, Keandra Morris, and the entire Office of Engagement uh, uh, team. Keep an eye out for additional Lifetime Learning programs this fall and again in the spring. And by the way, if anyone's interested in traveling with me to Tanzania, I'd love to talk to you about that program afterwards. It's in March, so join me. Um, we have the privilege of having Larry Terry, the executive director for the Weldon Cooper Center, with us this morning, and I'll introduce him in just a moment. But go ahead and give him a more than the score welcome in advance. Also, we're really um, grateful to have two sponsors who underwrote uh, the More Than the Score refreshments for this season. I can't tell you who they are. They've asked to remain anonymous, but thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Both are here this morning, so thank you. A few housekeeping uh just tips, reminders, please go ahead and power down your, your cell phones or turn it to vibrate for the hour and enjoy the talk. Um, surveys will be coming to you right after this More Than Score program, so take a moment and fill it out and let us know your thoughts for next year. Um, like I said, we'll begin in, in April or so in planning that program. Now, let me introduce our speaker for the morning. Larry Terry is the executive director of the Weldon Cooper Center for Public Service, and he's a professor of public policy in the Frank Batten School of Leadership at the University of Virginia. The Weldon Cooper Center exists to inform public policy, deliver public service, develop and inspire public leaders. Terry, along with his colleagues at the center, participate in the life of the university through joint academic appointments teaching and research, and other services to support the mission of the university. Prior to joining uh, UVA, uh, Larry Terry was the director of Urban Service, Education, Research, Community, Hope Institute at the University of North Texas at Dallas. Terry holds a PhD in public affairs from the University of Texas at Dallas a master's in public administration from San Diego State University, and a BA in black studies from the University of California in Santa Barbara. Please help me thank and welcome Larry Terry to More Than the Score. Good morning. Good 
Everybody hear me okay? Yes. All right, good. We were working on that for the past half hour, so I'm glad that we, we got that knocked out. Um, it's game day. We're excited, I assume. Um, uh, the one thing I will say is that I know we're playing Liberty today, but we've got to get that game down first to get us to tech, not look ahead, and uh, focus on that win. And it's been a very exciting uh, uh, time uh, since I arrived here at UVA about a year and a half ago. I uh, came from Dallas, Texas. Any Texans in the house? One? Kind of? Oh, kind of? Okay. Oh. Yeah, okay. My son's raising his hand as if... Uh, <laughs> yeah, so That's good. That's good. And, um, you know, moving from Dallas, Texas to Charlottesville um, has been quite the experience. I think, for, uh, for my family. So my wife and son are here with me. And it's been very eye-opening uh, in many ways. Um, exciting for what's happening here at this university. Uh, we're excited for the vision of, of President Ryan uh, to be a good and great university. Um, but there's also been a lot of uh, sort of reflection uh, that I've undergone here, not only as an individual, but within the family of the history of not only UVA, but of the state of Virginia. And I'm learning things all the time that about history that I didn't know, a lot of really powerful things. And uh, in that time, it has uh, gotten me to reflect about um, my own history, uh, my own family history, and become a lot more curious about, you know, where did my family come from? And this talk is, is called Census 2020, A Question of Citizenship. And I'll get more into, obviously, that here uh, in a moment. Um, but in pre- preparing for this talk, uh, I went to my Aunt Brenda, who is our family genealogist, to ask her these questions about our family history. And a couple months ago, uh, I was in Washington, D.C., and I was able to visit the African American uh, Museum of History and Culture. And if you've ever been on the second or third floor, there's this almost library-like area where you can go in and sort of research your family history, and I was able to do that, and got on Ancestry.com and was able to go through that workshop and found, through census records, members of my family who go back to Texas in the early 1900s. So I get home from that, and I I call my Aunt Brenda, and I say, you know, I found some of our family near Waco, Texas, and she says, yeah, I know, but I've got more for you. And so knowing that this talk was going to be about the census, I said, well, send me what you can about our family And she sent me this screenshot here from the 1870 census out of Alexandria, Louisiana. My great, 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 great grandfather, London Jones was his name. And he was a farm laborer, and as this 
indicated here, and I know you can't read it, it's a bit hard to see, but I've sort of highlighted it there for where he filled this out. He was a husband, father of three, and contributed to the census in 1870. This is five years after the Civil War in the South, and was able to contribute in that time to the census. And I looked at this, and I'm like, this is really, really powerful. To know that he participated in this, in this space, so long ago. And so it got me to thinking that there is a lot of power in the census itself. It not only is a record of an account of our population, but it definitely gives us some grounding in history. And so I was really struck by this because in parallel with this and sort of my personal life, what I do at the Cooper Center also relates to the census. Again, I'm the executive director of the Weldon Cooper Center for Public Service, and we've been around for a long time. Established in 1931, in fact, and initially started as the Bureau for Public Administration. Just before the Great Depression, they established a Bureau for Public Administration to help local and state government work more effectively. And that's what we've done for nearly 80 years. We've focused on state and local government in really two houses that we've divided our work through. So the the top, as you'll see here, is the applied research side. And we have the demographics research group, which does our census data work. And I'll talk more about them in a minute. The Center for Survey Research and the Center for Economic and Policy Studies. And then on the leadership development side, we have the Sorensen Institute for Political Leadership and also the Virginia Institute of Government uh, within the Cooper Center. And over the past year and a half, we've gone through this process of strategic planning, and what has really emerged for us are four core values. I just want to share those briefly with you here today because they definitely relate. Access, collaboration, community, and impact. That's what drives us. That's what drives our work. And I think in many ways even leads me here today because if we look at this first value of access, what it's told us is that we want to be really engaging with our work. We want people to understand the kind of work that we do, uh, all of the data that we crunch, uh, all of the research that we find. We want to be as accessible to the general public because this data has an impact on you. It has an impact on your life. And we we were established to help the Commonwealth. So within the Weldon Cooper Center for Public Service, as I mentioned, is the Demographics Research Group. They are a phenomenal team. And every time I meet with them, I learn something new. They do census work. Uh, They use census data uh, regularly to try to give us an understanding of the demographic shifts, not only in the United States, but of course uh, uh, within Virginia. And back in 2013, they produced the racial dot map. How many of us have seen this before? Got one hand, two, three. A few of us have seen this racial dot map. So what I've learned since I've been at the Cooper Center and worked with the demographics group is that the census really can be put into three 
buckets of function. The first would be the census every 10 years, as we know, does a population count. So it attempts to count every single person that we have living here in the United States. Very important. The census also does population estimates. Okay, Because the census only happens once every 10 years, we still have to have some indication of just about how many people are living in the country. So we use what happens in the baseline of every 10 years and build on that data annually. And that gives us the estimates. And then the census data also allows us to do projections 10 years, 20 years, 30 years into the future to get an understanding of how we're growing or how things are shifting. So this map here includes, and I've written this down because I know you can't see it, this map includes 308,745,538 dots. Somebody want to double check that for me? 308,745,538 dots. Each dot reflects each person who contributed to the census back in 2010. So back in 2010, I was in New York. If you look close, you can see my dot up there. Okay, you see everybody see it? I think my dot was at a party or something, but it's there back in 2010 in my New York life. And each dot is also color-coded to represent the race and ethnicity of the contribution in the census. So as it says here, and again, I know it's a little hard to read, but blue is non-Hispanic white, green African-American, red Asian, orange Hispanic, brown, all other categories are on this map. And this, of course, is the very macro view of that, but you can zoom in down to the local level, the census tract level, the state level, and what it really does is give you an indication of where people live. Okay, how are our communities uh, composed? And I think if you think about this at a deeper level, we can see why something like this would be very, very valuable and powerful to understand, okay? Again, the power of the census is amazing. The next thing, as I mentioned, sort of that second bucket in addition to counting how many people are here in the United States, the census data allows us also to estimate population year over year. And our demographics research group does a great job of not only using Census Bureau data to estimate population in the state and beyond, but they do a deeper level of analysis in looking at DMV records, birth records, and other forms of indication to try to figure out how exactly is our state growing. In this estimation, between 2010 and 2020, the top 20 fastest growing localities are listed here in green. Okay, this, again, this is the top 20 fastest growing. Not a lot of surprises here, I'm sure if you see, we see a lot of growth in Northern Virginia, 
Okay, so not, very, not surprising for all. And I'm sure with Amazon and all the things that are happening there, this is going to uh, change even more. Uh, I was a little surprised that at number 16 you had Radford. Anybody have a guess why that that might be one of the fastest growing localities in the state? Weapons, okay. <laughs> I wouldn't have thought that. Anybody else have any guesses as to why? Okay, all right. Yeah, it could be. Um, and uh, I've also had a number of colleagues in, in Blacksburg who say it's just getting so expensive to live in the town of Blacksburg that I'm sure that there's some movement to the peripheral communities to just try to find things that might be at a more affordable level. Again, I don't have any data to back that up, but that was just sort of a guess of mine. Um, but again, we see this, these are the top 20 fastest growing, and we are able to determine this from 2010 census data and the annual data that we collect after that. So this is one thing that the, the census provides us. <clears throat> Similar data on the estimates, uh, but this tells us the top 20 largest localities in the state as we see by 2020, okay? So these are the top 20 largest localities, and again, we build upon that every year, and the uh, census data provides us with that. And then the last bucket, as I mentioned, is census data allows us to project into the future. And I know that our demographics team is in part excited about next year's census because they've been doing these population projections since 2010. What they'll be able to see after 2020 is how close or how accurate were their projections for where we would be in 2020. So if we have this baseline here in 2010, around 8 million people live in Virginia as of that census, but they project out by 2020, it'll be a little over 8.5. 2030, they project a little over 9 million, and in 2040, closer to 10. But in 2020, with that census data, we will able, be able to get a more accurate assessment of that progress. So, I mentioned my great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, London, back in 1870, and certainly there's the value that that census information has for me as an individual in getting to understand my history. But why else is the census important? And again, not to assume anything, because I was at a presentation on the census done by our director, Chen Tsai, about a year and 10 months ago, and I learned a lot about just the basics of what the census does for us, why it's, why it's important. So there are a number of things here, and I don't have to go over all of them because I'm sure you're uh, familiar with them, but the census is important for us because of these population counts. It tells us how we have to apportion seats within our U.S. House of Representatives. So if we have growth in states or in communities, this affects seats within the House of Representatives. This also, by extension, affects the districts that we have within our states and in our communities. Um, just to this point, uh, I know that because of population trends, particularly in southern and southwest Virginia, there's some concern that seats in those parts of the state, seats might be lost to more of the faster-growing areas of Virginia, right? The, the census tells us that. 
Okay? But I think perhaps maybe even just as important in this space is the census tells us how we can allocate funding through grants at the federal level for the course of 10 years. Okay? So money that goes towards health, education, housing, infrastructure, all of those things come from the census. So it's critically important for us to participate in this space because it's one of those every 10 years, these opportunities that we have to engage with our government in a way that we hope will ultimately be beneficial for the communities that we live in. Okay. So I got to thinking, the census is important for all of those things in terms of the counts and the estimates and the projections. It gives us funding opportunities. It tells us where we have to put resources and, uh, and the like. But there's something deeper here that I want us to think about when we think about the census. That there is a democratic element and importance to the census that maybe we don't always think about. And part of that comes from the census and its establishment in the United States Constitution. How many of us knew that the census was established in the Constitution? Okay, good, all right, you're way ahead of me. It's not anything that I, I um, honestly, that I thought about, that the census was established back in the Constitution. So there's a constitutional democracy element to the census that may be overlooked as we engage in participation in the census. So it says in Article 1, Section 2 and 9, the actual enumeration shall be made within three years after the first meeting of Congress of the United States and within every subsequent term of 10 years in such manner as they shall by law direct. So there is constitutional importance to the census. And again, it gives us this great opportunity, even though it's only once every 10 years to say this is who I am, this is where I live, this is who's in my family, and the aggregation of that information is used to benefit us. Really important. And the Constitution tells us that this is a way that we can and should participate. The more accurate that this information is, the better off we all are. But as I also mentioned, there's some political and electoral impact in this. But at its baseline, in the way that I'm looking at the census in the Constitution, it also is a reflection of our democratic values. Representation, participation, and as we'll engage in with the rest of this conversation, the census is also a reflection of our citizenship responsibilities. Now, I know, and you know, we've all heard enough over the past year, year and a half, about the question of citizenship on the census. We do not, and I do not, have the time to sort of unpack all of that, but what I am proposing to you here is that if we can look at the census as a reflection of our values and a reflection of citizenship, 
meaning what responsibilities do we have as individuals in this country to contribute to the, to the common good and to our well-being. Part of that is grounded in the census. They need our participation. But it also asks us to think what else can and should we be doing as citizens to reflect these democratic values because they are important. One thing I've learned since I've come to UVA is that you cannot escape a lecture without at least one Thomas Jefferson quote or reference, so I got you. The obligation has been fulfilled, and what's, what's interesting about, about living here is that... Um, I mean, Thomas Jefferson's everywhere, right? And everyone, well, they'll throw in a quote for this, and you'll find a quote for that. So much, in fact, I was at the, the running, uh, the shoe store, Ragged Mountain, the other day, okay? Getting my annual new running shoes, and I was all excited about that. And so I'm at the uh, cash register to pay, and I look up above the cash register, and there's a quote about Thomas Jefferson and running. <laughs> I was like... And the quote was something to the effect of, Thomas Jefferson says, my dad says that running a mile and a half each day keeps the body strong or something like that. So I will do that. You know? And so that was a quote. I was like, man, even in the running store, they, they found a way to, to get Jefferson in there. So again, you get in your Jefferson quote, and it's definitely applicable and relevant and tells us a lot about this notion, again, of the foundation of this country, our constitutional republic, but also what should we do as citizens, okay? What responsibilities do we have? And so Thomas Jefferson, in his own political philosophy and foundation, really advocated for republicanism. And that's little r, republicanism, not in the contemporary sense of big r political party, but republicanism in the sense that he believed in the politics of engagement and that we are going to be a stronger society we are going to be a stronger country if in the things that we are trying to figure out, we figure them out together and that there's some engagement that we have in discourse. Certainly that there will be conflict, but that's not uh, necessarily a problem. But he wanted citizens to work out solutions and public problems for the common good. Certainly Madison and his interpretation within the Federalist Papers that, you know, individuals, they, just by their human nature, they're going to fight with each other, and so we need to set up institutions that will ultimately safeguard from the human nature that is to be self-interested. And that's how people are. So we need these three branches of government, and we need these institutions to ultimately promote and recognize that reality. Thomas Jefferson had a different thought. He said, yeah, all that's important, but we need people to be able to discuss things with one another, to engage with one another, okay? Think about things from the common good perspective. So he said in 1816, three years before this university was founded, action by the citizens in person, in affairs within their reach and competence, and in all others by representatives chosen immediately, and removable by themselves, constitutes the essence of a republic. Now, I've highlighted here uh, what I presume to be important in this quote, because he's certainly telling you, yes, we have to elect people. 
and citizens have to do the voting, the electing. But that level of participation should not end there. Once every four years, okay, you elect who you, who you need to, but that's not where our participation or our role as citizens should end. In affairs within their reach and competence, things that are close to you, things that are, you're passionate about, things that you're really good at, engage in those things as a citizen. That is what a republic is, not simply the representation portion. Okay. So in 1984, an author by the name of Benjamin Barber wrote a book called Strong Democracy. And in this book, he in essence paints a dichotomous picture of both thin and strong democracy. Okay, he says that there are practices that are a little lighter on the democratic side, but there's also a more robust form of democracy that we should definitely consider as we continue our democratic building and democratic maintenance. And on the thin side, we see practices of liberal democracy. And again, this is little l, not liberal in the, in the, in the contemporary sense. But liberalism in this form, in the traditional form, said that we need small government. Government needs to be limited, minimalistic, and again, government needs to be put in place in order to preserve individual rights. What are my rights? I want those kept. Government, you should be in place to preserve that. But other than that, kind of leave me alone. Okay? So citizens and their engagement and their, their purpose of acting is actually to continue to the preservation of those individualized rights. Don't tell me what to do. I know what's best for me, and that that's what we need. So voting, in this thin sense, goes towards preserving what is best for me. Okay? Census participation. I do that so I can preserve what's best for me. Okay? And Benjamin Barber says... He almost relates the thin democracy to a mentality almost of consumerism and consumption. And he says, the consumer is a creature of great reason devoted to small ends. He uses the gift of choice to multiply his options in and to transform the material conditions of the world. But never to transform himself or create a world of mutuality with his fellow humans. So the, liberal, the liberalism in democracy, the minimalism, the hands-off, let me have my rights, that's what's important in the thin side. Okay. So you say, what is strong? What would strong democratic principles look like? And it very much is built upon the Jeffersonian outlook about human potential, about what humans yearn for in terms of engagement and communion, and that there's a responsibility to engage in this space. And that, again, conflict can exist, but it also recognizes citizen 
interdependence, that we need each other. Our communities need one another. I need some level of commitment and understanding that the things that impact me, in all likelihood, they can impact you. Your well-being is my well-being. So how do we facilitate that through engagement? Okay? So in 1927, John Dewey gave us, in his book, The Public and Its Problems, a quote that I've adjusted to fit uh, uh, our discussion here. Strong democracy is not an alternative to other principles of associated life. It is the idea of community life itself. It is a name for a, a life free and enriching communion. So our commitment to one another, this, this yearning and this thirst for together, how do we figure things out? My role is to give, to think about others as a citizen that that actually helps us, okay? So in the prompt, I'm sure as you saw, as you were invited to today, uh, the description of this, this talk in particular, it said, one thing to think about before this discussion is, what does citizenship mean to you? What does it mean to you? And this is the portion where I would like some insight from you what does citizenship mean to you? And we have a microphone, I think, somewhere. So if anyone would like to raise their hand and give their thoughts on what does citizenship, what does it mean to you? What is the role of a citizen, the responsibility of a citizen? What does that mean to you? What does citizenship mean? I see kind of a hand over here. Okay, we got something. All right. What does citizenship mean to you? Go for it, please. First of all, to be informed. Okay. But the most absolute important is to get off my duff every two years and get out and vote. Very good. Voting, if you don't vote, then don't complain. Very good. Citizenship means get off the duff and vote. What else? What, is, what else does citizenship mean to you? What does it mean? Hand in the back. All right. I just want, I want to say that I grew up in a very different place. I never learned civics. Oh. I grew up in a, a street mentality in Brooklyn, and my neighborhood was important. Yeah. I'm, I'm ashamed to say I didn't vote until... Maybe I was 21. Okay. I didn't know anything about government. I learned a little bit of history, and I thought I had a good education until I moved to other areas and saw the disparity, um, the things I didn't know, the things I didn't that were skipped over. Um, today, I mean, I have a master's degree to get uh, my teacher, but. I, advancing in my own field and trying to keep up with information in my own field mm -hmm. and my areas of a musician um, of interest as a jazz musician, I just can't keep up with everything I need to know, and I, I find a hard time with that. 
my ability to read and keep up with who's for what, now having to source everything I read and where is it coming from and is it true or not, I find it overwhelming. And I can tell you that the people that I grew up with learned right and wrong a lot from their parents, a lot from people that agree with them with values that they see and not from informational sources, um, authorities that they don't trust. So citizenship to me now means absolutely participation. But the knowing part is really difficult because for a long time I believed in and trusted my government. And for the first time in my life, I'm seeing that we've been sold. Mm. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, and I, I think much like the word democracy or the word love, everybody's interpretation is going to be different. Right? So citizenship is going to look different for all of us. For the gentleman in the back, it was about getting up to vote. That's important, to be informed. Um, for the young lady in the back, it's, hey, how do I sift through all of this just so I can participate in some meaningful way? It's going to look different to all of us. But at the root of this term, citizenship, again, not necessarily in the context where we think of the legality of uh, you as a citizen, but in this term citizen, uh, there's a great book by Peter Block called Community, the Structure of Belonging, and he tells us a citizen is one who's willing to be accountable for and committed to the well-being of the whole. That whole can be a city block. I'm going to add in a census tract, of course. A community, a nation, the earth. A citizen is one who produces the future, someone who does not wait, beg, or dream for the future. Okay? This is his interpretation of what a citizen is. And again, in much in that Jeffersonian philosophical perspective, this is what a citizen is and what they can be. So I thought I'd round out this discussion with a few stories about what citizenship might look like. Okay, where do we see it? Where is citizenship happening? Where is it taking place? Uh, at the beginning of this talk, I mentioned one of our units within the Cooper Center is the Sorensen Institute for Political Leadership. And I've come really fond of this, of this um, uh, program within the Sorensen Institute, which is the High School Leaders Program. So for two weeks, every summer, we get high school kids from around the state, uh, various regions, uh, races and ethnicities, uh, political sort of uh, backgrounds, and we bring them together for two weeks to talk about trust, civility, and respect in politics. And so they do all of these debate exercises. Here in this picture, you can see them there. They're in Richmond. And one of the more powerful things that they do is they craft legislation a policy to be taken to the General Assembly. A couple years ago, one of the uh, 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 pieces of policy that they produced was to reduce the amount of lead in hunting ammunition. 
They said, because that has residual effects on the environment and our water. So they came together and said, this is really, really important to us. What can we do about it? Let's craft some policy. And that actually got taken to the state. This was their determination of what and how they wanted to engage. This summer, one of the groups presented a policy about mental health screenings for high school kids. I don't think we need to think really hard why, for them, that was of great importance. But one person who opened up her policy proposal uh, said, I have many of my friends who I'm worried about, who I know are struggling with their mental health, and no one's there to help them. What if we can enact legislation that would actually help all high school students so they don't have to deal with this issue? Okay. Again, this is very citizenship-driven, less thinking about what's good for them and thinking, this is a problem that we're seeing. How can we do something about it? They're not elected. They have no quote-unquote formal position power to do so, but they have come together to think, how can we help? So a very, very exciting program that the Weldon Cooper Center does every summer through the Sorensen Institute. Great bunch of kids and very exciting for them uh, and what they do. The next sort of example I wanted to use was something called Rally Southwest Virginia. I've been all over this state over the past year and a half, and one of my favorite parts of the state to go to is in Southwest Virginia. We have the UVA Wise campus there. Beautiful campus if you've never been or seen it, but there's so much going on in that part of the state to try to improve community, and this is one of those ventures and initiatives they do community coaching. They hand out grants for community improvement. You see sort of two of the products of those uh, projects coming together. One was a mural. Another one was sort of a welcome to our town kind of a sign. But in the process of becoming part of Rally Southwest Virginia, community members come together and say, hey, how do we want to elevate and lift up our community? And they're given the skill set and the resources to do so. So people, much like the gentleman said, hey, how do I get off my duff? These individuals in these communities are saying, this is how I want to help. This is how I want to engage. And even if it's uh, you know, a quote-unquote small project like a welcome to our community sign, that's a point of pride and a point of engagement and participation that they put forth. It's amazing. They do ribbon cuttings and all these kinds of fun things. But again, this is citizenship. The next one I want to mention is out of Richmond, Virginia. <clears throat> it's called RVA for Safer Streets. It was founded by Paul Taylor and Jawad Abdul. Paul and Jawad met each other in prison. Both of them were there for 20 plus years. And when they met in prison, both from Richmond, they said, when we get out, we've got to do something. I was fortunate enough to meet Mr. Taylor oh, back, in the, back in June. I was in, in Chesapeake for a talk, and he was there, and he spoke to the group about RVA for Safer Streets. And he said, you know what? I barely have two nickels to rub together to my name, but I'm glad that I could be here today to speak with you all about something that's really important to me. And the basis of RVA for Safer Streets was 
why don't we establish a basketball league in the neighborhood we grew up in to give people some sense of purpose to play together. They put this in a place where sort of uh, historically, uh, you know, gang members and gangs were fighting each other. And he said, well, what if we start a basketball league? Now they play against each other on the court. So they put this together, but in order for you to play, you've got to do some life workshops. You don't get to go out on the court unless you attend the workshops. You don't get to go out on the court unless you meet with prospective employers. So you've got to do something to improve your position in life if you want to get on the court. And he's like, people don't miss. People do not miss these workshops or these opportunities. The chief of police, I believe it was last summer, in support of RVA for Safer Streets, said during the summer months when this basketball league is going on, crime has statistically gone down. And Mr. Taylor said to me, he said, part of the reason I did this is because I want to be able to help clean up the mess that I helped to create. So this was someone who had spent two decades in prison, for all intents and purposes, had his ability to be a good citizen taken away by his own actions, but still said, I'm going to do something when I get out. I want to make a commitment to my community, and this was his way to do that. In August of 2018, Mr. Abdu said, when we first started, 90% of our league was jobless. And now those numbers have inversed. It's our job to make sure the hope reaches them. It's growing. I see it. Unfortunately, this summer, Mr. Abdu passed away from a heart attack at 48 years old. The chief of police, the mayor, all came out and said, what a tragedy this is because this man was committed to his community. Great program. This is what citizenship looks like. <laughs> and I'll end, I'll end with this. In 1986, Sergeant Maria Canales immigrated with her family from Honduras. And they came here for a better life. She graduated high school in 1998, and they came here by way of a visa, and that visa expired. So she graduates high school, wants to go to college, and because of her status, she has to pay out-of-state tuition at the community college. Her mother and father are working hard to provide that for her. Not surprisingly, she was unable to do so or maintain that ability to go to school. So Maria, after 9-11 joins the army. 
serves in Iraq for a year, and as I've come to learn, for that entire year during one of the worst periods of the war, was being bombed daily out at Camp Anaconda. She tells a story of one night she was sleeping, and they started to get bombed. The impact of that bomb actually blew her out of her bed onto the floor. So she lived for a year in this space, fearing for her life daily. They would go on night convoys because she was in finance, and they would deliver money and resources to different parts of Iraq, do journeys across the desert, pitch black, Sergeant Canales, get up in the turret and protect us. She's like, I can't see. It's dark out there. Get up in the turret and protect us. Maria Canales from Honduras. So she does it. She returns home, goes back to school, obtains her BA, obtains her MBA, doesn't quit there. She says, you know what? I know how traumatic that experience was. I know that coming back from the military, from war, it's hard to adjust. What is it that I can do to help veterans? This is tough. While she was in the Army, she gained her American citizenship, but didn't quit there. She joined an organization called Iraq, Afghanistan Veterans of America and has made the commitment to work on veteran issues, such as employing veterans when they return, mental health awareness and suicide prevention, getting women the treatment, the care, and the recognition that they need within the military. So here she is marching in Veterans Day a couple of years ago in New York. Here she is looking tough in the middle. And here she is on the right, right before the signing of some legislation with President Barack Obama for getting veterans back to work. Maria Canales from Honduras ended up in the Oval Office because of her commitment to citizenship. I'm fortunate that I got to marry Maria Canales. <laughs> as they say, I married up. I know that. And as she's always often to tell me, she says, you know what? If anything ever goes down, get behind me. I know what I'm doing. I'm like, oh, no, I know, I know. I know where the... I know my role, trust me, it's up here. I like to, you know, I like to read books, you know, this is what you do. <clears throat> but this is her story. It's a story of citizenship. It's a story of giving. It's a story of a commitment to the well-being in a way that certainly recognizes our responsibilities as citizens in the formal sense of voting and all of that, but it's also a commitment beyond that, much in the way that Jefferson might have hoped that we do. So yes, 2020 and the census is, in fact, about citizenship. It is. It's about what we're willing to do, what we're willing to engage in. We we need to vote, regardless of who you vote for. That is citizenship. And get into it. 
It's participating in the census for sure, but hopefully as we've discussed here, citizenship goes deeper than that and that we should make that commitment to that. I think back to my great, 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 great grandfather, London Jones, and his ability to commit to the census process. It's certainly been informative and inspiring and powerful for me, but I also think of this guy, my son, Larry, who went with us to vote. Now, he has an I voted sticker on, trust me, no voter fraud, he did not vote. <laughs> but he went with us and watched us do it, and they gave him a future voter sticker, because certainly that's going to hopefully be important to him, but all the other things that are related to citizenship, we as a family try to impart in him as well, and I hope that that is something that in 2020 and beyond will be important to you as well. Thank you very much. Thank you all for coming, and I want to thank you especially for your talk um, oh, on behalf of Lifetime Learning and the Alumni Association. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and we also have our raffle drawing. Um, We're doing Q&A first. <laughs> All right. Well, um, you want to pull our raffle Sure. Winner? Yeah. Should I just name this or just? Yeah. <laughs> Mary Slaughter. Mary Slaughter. I knew it was going to be Mary. <laughs> All right. Great. We'll get, she, she's over we'll there in the get back. this to you and we'll um, take a few questions since we have some time. Thank you, Mr. Terry. Um, we would be sadly remiss not to mention that this particular census is um, in Virginia has extra impact because we have an opportunity in 2021 when the next districting is done to change our constitution. And legislation, uh, I would say both parties have done us wrong on this issue because they've drawn the districts to choose their voters, mm -hmm. and we go there thinking we're choosing our politicians when the, the shuffle and the deal has all happened beforehand when they choose their voters by conjuring districts. Anyway, the legislation for an amendment has been passed the last General Assembly, will and it will go to the new General Assembly this winter in January, and the legislation calls, though, like many things in government, it's not perfect, and there are some things that can be corrected with surrounding legislation, which is quite important. But anyway, this constitutional amendment to bring sunlight and transparency to the process, make sure it's a bipartisan in how the maps get drawn, and it also, for the first time, would have a commission of 16 people that do this, only half would be politicians, whereas now it's the party in power in each house solely draws it to their advantage. So if this passes, which we hope it will, this winter, this amendment will be on your ballot next November and will affect the redraw in 2021. Um, you can get into the weeds of it. One Virginia, 2021. Yes, I'd be interested in... He mentioned 
gerrymandering. I'd be interesting when the first drawing was done. I'm, my, maybe it was 1788, but that's when the first gerrymander was done, and it happened to be in this fifth district in Virginia when Patrick Henry redrew so that Monroe could challenge Madison, the Federalist. Yeah, I, I don't have the answer to that. I don't know when the first one was done, but good question. Sorry. That one over here. Thank you very much. Um, I have a very brief public service announcement. Uh, my name is Joe, and I have come out of retirement to be a recruiter for the 2020 census. And um, you can apply online. If you have friends, family, um, even, you know, come out of retirement like I did and my wife, um, we're looking for people. It's short-term employment. It doesn't pay. It's not a volunteer job. Um, but if you have friends, family that might be interested in a short-term, flexible work schedule, 30 to 40 hours a week um, through probably June, up until June, I think probably they're going to try and wrap it up. But um, it's uh, 2020census.gov uh, slash jobs. And if you want, I'd be happy to give you a card if after the talk. But the good professor has told us how important a census is. And I look at it as a civic duty. Yeah. Very important. Thank you. Mine is kind of a legal question. I, excuse me, I took a screenshot of what you had up there. Yeah. Um, where the constitutional provision providing for the census says that Congress, in such manner as they shall by law direct, can, you know, how, to what extent can Congress tweak, fool around with, abrogate, I don't know what, dealing with the census and how it's conducted and the contents of it and everything else? Um, Do we, should we be worried? Now, I, I'm not a constitutional scholar, so I don't want to inappropriately answer. Um, but what my belief is that, I mean, that's one of Congress's responsibilities. They can address those things all the time, but there's obviously going to be some checks and balances with that. But again, as we've also seen, there's going to be some legal and uh, potentially you know, Supreme Court issues that come with that as well, and anything that would modify uh, that language or, or how that's framed. So... They can do it, uh, just a matter of the political will or uh, if it's going to be approved across all three branches. So, um, Going back to that slide you had with uh, Mr. Taylor and Mr. Abdu. Yes. Um, it would be interesting to know, perhaps you do, did they have their citizenship rights restored once they got out of prison? I think this is a really big problem for people who've paid their debt. Right. They had had problems, they're felons, they've paid their debt, they've paid their fines, they've paid restitution, and yet they can't vote without going to extraordinary measures to get their rights back, and it's not as easy. Uh, they can't, employment is infected. Yeah. Um, there's, you know, it's a, their citizenship, I think, should be restored. Right. Um, I haven't spoken to Mr. Taylor uh, about that specifically, um, so no, I don't know, but I, I would assume so, but I know that it is a big issue for reasons you just mentioned, yeah. Yes, yes. Can you give some his, uh, historical context to what they considered citizenship when they wrote the Constitution? You know, what the process was today. It's all well-defined, and you have birth certificates, and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. What were they thinking when they said the word citizen when they wrote the Constitution? 
That's a long uh, answer. Um, I think much to your point, you know, the, the discussion or the legality of, well, if you're born here, then citizenship should be granted to you. In 1866, and again, I know this is after the Constitution was established, but this could sort of shed some light on um, the issues with what you're asking. Because even though it was written that if you're born here, you should be granted citizenship, in 1866, President Andrew Johnson vetoed the Civil Rights Act because he said, you know what, we've got a bunch of recently freed slaves, and they've got to earn their citizenship. So his thought was, yes, they may have been born here, and although it says that, I'm going to veto this Civil Rights Act because they've got to earn it, and we haven't seen whether or not they've earned that citizenship. So that sort of complicates things because there's always been, again, the language says this, but there's always going to be somebody else's different interpretation as to whether or not, again, do we grant citizenship just because they're born here? And and there's been leaders, uh, legal scholars, people who interpret to say, yeah, it says that, but I don't think that we should, right? So it's it's a very complicated sort of history, but I think, again, the intent was uh, birth, you know, should should have some weight in that. And even today, we're sort of still having some of those discussions about whether or not um, that is what was meant or intended. The gentleman in the... One I don't know. final question. Uh, just a question. Uh, back, to the last, back to the last slide. And year of census and citizenship... And that was a question that came up, is citizenship on the census forms? No, it will not be. It will not be. The, que- the question was, will the question about are you a citizen be on the census in 2020? And the answer to that is no, it will not be. And uh, there's various reasons as to why that happened, but the answer and the ultimate determination was no, it will not go on this time. Maybe in 2030. Who knows? But thank you all for your time. This is great. Go Hoos. Let's get this win today. Thank you again. And thank you all for a great more than score season. Have a happy Thanksgiving. Big guy, look at you. Look at my boy. Come on.